You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Genesis chapter number three, and last Wednesday we started this series that we're going to be discussing for a few weeks on the presence of God. And last week we talked about the sure and sweeping presence of God. Just the very fact that God is there already, always, He is there. He is omnipresent. But also there are other ways that God is there. Not just His existence there, but sometimes God will manifest Himself, God will work in a certain way. In Genesis chapter number 3, we're going to read verse number 1 down through verse number 13. And though it's a very familiar story, I pray that God will speak to our heart from this chapter this evening. And here's what I'd ask of you if you'd be willing to do this. I prayed and I told God I'd be willing to do this and have done it. But if you would just allow your heart to be open and say whatever God exposes or speaks to me about tonight, I just want to obey the Lord. The best way to leave church, I always tell you this, is to leave saying... I obeyed God. The worst way to leave church is to go home saying, I wish I would have obeyed God. So if God speaks to you tonight, you obey, and I promise you this, you'll leave better for it. Let's look here in verse number one, Genesis chapter number three. See what the Bible says. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, yea, hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. By the way, the devil always attempts to cast doubt on the word of God. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Now she's already messed up because she omitted a word. God said they could eat freely. She didn't add that word in there. She left it out. She's already corrupted the word of God. Verse 3, But of the fruit of the tree uh, uh, which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. He said, I know something God doesn't know. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. By the way, it's not always a good thing when your eyes are open. For these young people down here, I'd pray there's some things their eyes never have to get open to. Wouldn't that be a blessing? He tries to present it as though this is going to give her some sort of an advantage, some better relationship with God, but it's not always a positive to get that enlightenment in the wrong sense. I'm glad sometimes we ought to be simple concerning that which is evil. Amen? And uh, I'd be all right to just say I'm ignorant when it comes to that. That'd be fine with me. Verse number 5, For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And here's, what, here's the sin. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's the, what is it, the lust of the, what? She saw it, lust of the flesh, or lust of the eyes, I'm sorry. Good, or lust of the flesh, sorry. And it was pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes. And a tree to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened. And I underline this, I'm not preaching on this, but watch this. And they knew. They were already conscious of their sin. We honestly don't need to preach for 40 minutes to get you to be conscious of your sin. I don't need somebody to preach to me for five minutes for me to be conscious of my sin. I already know my sin. 
You already know your sin. The reason we go through a service like this is so that God, and we'll talk about tonight, through the Holy Spirit can deal with us so that we might admit the fact that we are a sinner. God already knows it and then just get it right. The consciousness of sin, they knew it, and here's what they did. As soon as they understood they were sinners, they didn't try to get it right. They tried to cover it up. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together. By the way, the only tree Jesus cursed is the fig tree. Isn't that interesting? It's a symbol of man trying to atone or cover his own sin. God's against it here, and he's against it all the way through the Bible. And made themselves aprons, and they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. No doubt God had a scheduled time he would meet in fellowship with Adam. And Adam and his wife hid themselves, here's the phrase, watch this, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called, God called unto Adam and said unto him, first question, where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Second question, he said, who told thee that thou was naked? Here's the third question, hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? God is now sifting He's winnowing. He's trying the gold, if you will. He's bringing out the conviction in Adam so that he'll admit his fault before God. Verse 12, And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. He kind of blames God. He said, You're the one who got me in this mess. You gave me that woman. Maybe some of you have said that even here recently. I don't know. Verse 13, And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. We talked about the fact that God's presence is sure. It is always there. It's sure and it's sweeping. It's encompassing. It's everywhere. God is never absent. But tonight I want to speak to you on this thought. God's searching and sobering presence. The concept of sin is a concept that is lost on modern man. There is nothing right or wrong in our generation. There just isn't. I mean, they would just discard anything. Whatever somebody wants to get involved in, they should be allowed to get involved in that. There should be no barriers. There should be no governor, no restraint to it. And you and I need to tolerate whatever it is that they want to partake in. There's nothing right. There's nothing wrong. There is no absolute. You can see that in our world today. You saw the news report where they're making people, young people five years old and undergo and be a part of these LGBTQ things. And I saw one celebrity athlete who would say, if your idea of protecting our children is banning or rather is, a, is, is a, a banning LGBTQ people from interacting with them and not banning assault weapons, and you and I have a different idea of protecting children. I said, yes, we do. Sin is a lost concept on modern man, but here's what I'm afraid of. Sin really is almost a lost concept on the Christian. Nothing really bothers us anymore. I used to preach with an old preacher. He's in heaven now. He's very well known uh, on the other side of the country. And, uh, but he would ask this question often. When's the last time you got under conviction? To Christian people. When's the last time you got under conviction? When's the last time that God troubled you over the sin in your life? I think it was David who wrote it in the book of Psalms said, I will be sorry for my sin. For a little while this evening, I want us to think on the fact that God's presence is constantly searching out the sin in our life to expose it, because He wants to keep our fellowship with Him where it needs to be. Tonight, you and I are called Christians, but don't get it wrong, we are not Christ. And though the Bible says that we are saints, we are still sinners. 
Jesus stood up and said, which one of you convinceth me of sin? He's saying, who here can charge any sin to my life? And he could do that because he never sinned. But I dare say none of us would be brazen enough to take this pulpit tonight and say, hey, who in this crowd could name one sin to my charge? Because we all know tonight there are sins that we are guilty of in our life. John Wesley made the statement, he said, we do not injure the cause of holiness by admitting our sin. But we do uh, uh, cause the harm to the cause of holiness when we deny that we're sinners. 1 John 1 and 8, the Bible said that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Paul made the statement, O wretched man that I am. We preached that of Psalm 139 last week, and that psalmist, he began the psalm and ended it by asking God to search him. And he said, see if there be any wicked way in me. And tonight for man, sin is as old as the Garden of Edom. Sin is inherent in our nature. It's ingrained in our society. And sin is indiscriminate in who it victimizes. You study it out and find sin works around us. Sin works in us. Sin works through us, and sin works on us. And it's sad to say it, but it's true that we sin in thought, we sin in action, we sin in word, we sin in what we do, sometimes we sin in what we fail to do. The bottom line is, you and I tonight are sinners. Yes, saved by grace, but still yet a sinner. You say, well, I don't agree with that. You proved you're a sinner because you lied. Paul said, I know in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. The heart of man is desperately wicked, and who can know it? And when I got saved, I settled my sin question, but I did not settle my sin conflict. Every single day, I still battle with this old, wretched, corrupt, dying, decaying flesh that is at enmity with God. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 7, and I'll just paraphrase, Paul was a schizophrenic just like you and I are. Paul said, there's one law in my mind, another law in my members. And the law in my mind wants to do that which is holy and right, and the law in my members wants to do things that you could not even imagine. He said, I find myself not doing what I wish I would do and then getting caught up in what I abhor because my flesh is wicked and it is not saved. You and I belong to Christ. Yes, we do. We're saved and we are His. But we still live in this body of flesh and you will battle this body until this body drops dead and is put in the ground. You say, what is sin? Sin is transgression. What is sin? It is missing the mark. What is sin? Sin is rebellion. What is sin? Sin is disobedience. I tell it like this to young people. Sin is anything that you and I do or think or get caught up in that God would not be pleased with. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I don't want to bust our bubble tonight, but that means you're a sinner. Your halo needs, uh, needs straightened up there a little bit, okay? Uh, we're all sin, every single one of us, from the cutest little baby. You don't, have to you don't have to teach a baby how to sin. They come out of the womb knowing how to sin. Say amen right there. And we don't have to teach the mom and dad how to do it either. They're pretty good at it as well. Adam sinned. 
Noah sinned. You getting the idea? Abraham sinned. David sinned. Moses sinned. Job sinned. And the only thing to me more mind-blowing than a lost person refusing to let Christ forgive their sins is a Christian refusing to admit the fact they have sin in their life and allowing Christ to clean it up. I read a statement that said God's nature or God's habit is to pursue transgression. God is always on the trail of sin in my life and in yours. He is searching. He is seeking. He is shining the light. He is trying things to get us to understand that we have a sin problem that we need to get taken care of. And here's why. God loves you. And God desires to walk with you. And he wants to be a friend that sticketh closer than a brother so that presence of God will bring that conviction and contrition in the life of a Christian so that that fellowship with God is not hindered. Nothing between my soul and the Savior. That's what God desires for our life. God is in the habit to pursue sin. He can't stand its stench, its stain, or its sight that separates man from God. So God goes out of his way not to beat you down, not, not to be a mean God up in heaven, but but to keep that father-child relationship, he'll bring that conviction so that you'll confess your sin and he can cleanse your soul. We know now from the scripture, and you probably know it from personal experience, God is constantly searching you and I to shine the light on sin so that we can enjoy the fullness of his presence. God's presence is holy and it's searching. But listen, it's also holy searching. God searches us several ways. Number one, he'll search us. This is not the uh, outline. This is the introductory outline, so don't get too excited. Number one, he searches us through the scripture. The Bible likens the Bible in the book of James to a mirror. And when you and I read the Bible, it shows us all the flaws, faults, and imperfections in our life. If you can read the Bible and God never stirs your soul about your, more, your need for more of Him in your life, then you're probably reading the Bible wrong. Because every time I go to my Bible, I'll tell you what it does. It convicts me as much as it comforts me. It shows me some needs in my life, and God will search me through the Scripture. He said, I hide my, thy word in my heart that I might not sin against God. Not only that, God will search us through the service. Sermon. Isn't that true? I've seen that happen many times. The preacher will preach, and you can just tell as the preacher, God is searching some people right now. You can see it. I've seen them sit in the pew like this. I mean, their uh, their hands on the back of the pew in front of them during the invitation. Their knuckles are white as fresh fallen snow, and they're trying to ride out the conviction because while the preacher was preaching in the pulpit, the big preacher was preaching to their heart. It's amazing to me how one man can preach one sermon and speak to a thousand people a thousand different ways. How does that happen? That's the sermon, the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit. That's how God searches through the Scripture, through the sermon. He'll search you through circumstances. You know, sometimes God might allow things to come in your life that are not pleasant to get you to acknowledge the fact that maybe there's some need you have to get back to where you used to be with Him. Sometimes He will allow you to get marred on the wheel so that He can remake you. And then He'll search you through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has almost been stolen from Baptist churches because we're scared to death of the charismatic crowd, but Baptist people believed in the Holy Spirit before there ever was a woman preacher down in Florida to start a charismatic movement. Say amen right there. 
It's Wednesday night. We might as well have church anyhow. And uh, so the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is working. And here's what I'm saying tonight. The presence of God, we think, is this. Consolation. We think it's celebration. We think it's running and shouting and swinging from the proverbial chandeliers. But I dare say the presence of God is also a heavy conviction because our God is holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And you'll find in Scripture that before there's shouting, there is sackcloth. And before there's revival, there is repentance and before folks uh, enjoyed the blessing of his presence they were broken because of their sin and their fallow ground had to be turned over so that they might have that fullness of God and here's what I believe tonight as we gather in these pews on the outside we shake hands we sing we smile maybe two or three of us shout maybe that's a little stretch one or two of us shout that's a, that's a primer for you to do something, not just sit there like a wax painting of people on Wednesday night. But anyway, we say amen, but on the inside, the Holy Spirit of God is searching us, looking in those secret places, those rooms that you have the door locked to to everybody else, but he has access to every bit of it. Here in Genesis chapter 3, this is the record of how sin entered into the world. And it also is a record of how man reacts to his sin and then how God responds to the man that has fallen into sin. You read through the verses and you'll see that not only does sin separate man from God, but sin also produces in you and I a desire to be separated from our God. You can always tell when somebody's got something wrong in their life by the fact they want to avoid the things of God. You study chapter 3 and you find that God is the initiator. By that I mean it's God who comes to Adam. Sometimes we'll say, I was seeking God. You weren't seeking God. God sought you before you ever realized that he was. I'm glad God came to look in my direction before I ever turned my head toward heaven. Now, you begin to read these verses, and you understand that up until chapter 3, this is a world that had no sin in it, sin in it whatsoever. That's hard for you and I to understand, because all we know is this world filled with sin. But here in verse 1 through verse 13, we find that entrance into sin. The creation of God becomes the workshop of Satan. First, I want you to consider the scene. The Garden of Eden is a perfect place. It's the paradise of God. I don't know exactly what it was like, but I know it's a lot better than what it's like right now. I kind of imagine it sometimes the roses would bloom with no thorns on their stem. The sky would have no clouds in it. Man could walk and no dust would rise up around his feet. As man would uh, tend that garden, no sweat would come down his brow. There was no cancer, no corruption, no kind of discouragement. I, I always say the roosters didn't crow till about 11 a.m. Wouldn't that be good? All the cows gave chocolate milk and all the bunnies laid Cadbury eggs. I mean, everything was just perfect. But then I see the serpent. The Bible said in the first verse of the chapter that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. Now, we know from just knowing our Bible that this is Satan. I don't think that this creature looked like the snake that we see today. I believe he was beautiful, whatever his form was, maybe a shining figure of light. And Eve obviously was comfortable enough to have a conversation with him. By the way, most sin starts with something that seems harmless, like a conversation with the wrong person. Say amen right there. And so I see the serpent. The Bible 
Bible said that, number three, he is subtle. That means he's sneaky. Can I say that's just how the old devil works? He is sneaky. He's laying traps through and iron snares all the day long. He goes to Eve and begins a conversation and he bases it on the word of God. The devil knows the word of God better than some Christians do and he begins to twist the scripture a little bit. He casts a little bit of negativity on God and on the standards that God has set for this first couple. He engages Eve in the conversation and he begins to tempt her in this way. If you will do what I'm asking you to do, you'll be able to have a better relationship with God. If you'll compromise, you can serve God better. Can I say God is not interested so much in the result. God is interested in the method that yields the results. You get result driven and you will compromise. Say amen right there. God is worried about how you do it. And she falls for it. We see the sin. She takes the fruit. I don't know what it was. We always say the apple. I don't know if it's the apple or not. Neither do you. And I don't want to talk about it after church. But she takes the apple. She takes the fruit. And she bites it. And, and then she takes it and gives it to her husband. Now Adam knew better. But Adam I believe loved Eve so much. It's a good picture of Christ and how much he loves his bride. He was willing to take a bite of that which would destroy his life. And he bit that apple and the two get plunged into sin. Now the first thing they do is this. Listen to me. Here's what sin does. Sin brings guilt. Guilt brings shame and shame makes you and I try to cover up the sin that we've committed. The first thing they do is they go to that fig tree and they take leaves off the fig tree because now they knew they were naked. I'll say it again. I don't have to spend an hour trying to convince you of your sin. You already know what your problem is and I know what my problem is. They take those fig leaves and they make them aprons to try and cover their sin. Now here it is. In that Garden of Eden, there's an Adam there. He's a sinner now. He's separated from God. He's living amongst the trees of the garden. There's Eve, his wife. They're covered in these attempts to hide their own sin. And then God comes walking in the garden. The Bible said in the cool of the day, I bet you God was thinking, I walk with Adam at this time every day. He's my friend. I love Adam. I want to meet with Adam. I want to bless Adam. And Adam's not there waiting on God. Now, God knew exactly the situation. But as God walks in the garden, Adam and Eve hear him and they try to hide themselves from his presence. A lot of folks try to hide themselves from the presence of God behind a suit and tie. A lot of folks try to hide themselves from the presence of God behind a Sunday dress or a smile on their face, or their assigned seat in their pew every Sunday, or a tithing envelope, or a raised hand, or a fake amen, and they try to hide themselves from God. But I like what God does. God comes to where Adam was, and then he begins to call his name. Hey, listen, if God calls your number, you better just pick it up. And God begins to say, Adam, Adam! I don't doubt when the preacher preaches the Holy Spirit that lives within us does the same thing. He begins to call your number and say, that's your problem right there. That's what you're facing right there. That's what you're struggling with right there. Of course, Adam doesn't respond. God has to go to where Adam is. And then he begins to ask him some questions. He said, what have you done? Where have you been? Well, I mean, who told you to eat that? Here's what he's doing. He's bringing this conviction into Adam's life. He begins to search Adam and sober him 
up about his sin. There he is. His nature is to pursue sin, pursue transgression. Adam wanted to cover it. Adam wanted to keep it quiet, but he couldn't escape the conviction of God in his life. God comes to Adam, holy, 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 and there is Adam, wicked, 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 and God in the presence of Adam shines the light of his holiness on the sinfulness of that fallen man, and Adam can't do anything but admit the fact that he's a sinner. Holy, 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 that's who he is. When holiness searches out the secret places of wickedness, I would say this, it is serious, it is sobering, and it is searching. God used Nathan as a type of Holy Spirit in David's life. David sinned and tried to hide it, tried to cover it up by having the man killed whose wife he committed adultery with. And Nathan walked in there. I'm glad he wasn't bought and paid for. I'm glad he wasn't a hireling. I'm glad he wasn't a politician. I'm glad he was a prophet. And he walked into the presence of the king and he said, hey, listen, I got a story for you. He told him the story. You know about it. And then he looked right at him, laid his finger on the stone and said, by the way, I'm talking about you. All of a sudden, conviction. I think about Job in Job 23. Joe made the statement. He said, I got in the presence of God. He said, and it troubled me. I think about Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to the Holy Ghost. And God killed them both in that early church. They were coming to church to be seen, not to bring glory to God. And God killed them dead, but I think he didn't just do that for them. I think he did it to protect the young church he started right there. So they'd understand, hey, listen, it's not about you. It's all about the Lord. Amen. I think about there's other illustrations uh, uh, that I found in the Bible. I think about the silver cup they put in Benjamin's bag. Yeah. Why'd they do that? So that the brothers might remember their sin. I think about Achan. Achan had something hidden away in his tent. And God said, Joshua, there's no reason for you to pray until you get right. Sometimes we think, well, I'll just go down to an altar, pop my, pop my bubble gum and say, Lord, I'm sorry about it, and go away. No contrition, not broken over the sin. He said, no, 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 Joshua, you need to get up off your face and go take care of this thing. The sin is an ache. You need to figure it out. He's searching. And when God searches, it's sobering. I was studying for this message, looking up all these different examples, how God would come and in conviction he would work. Billy Sunday made the statement, he said, most Christians have a heart like Ezekiel's temple. The further in you search, the more abominations you'll find. In John 16, Jesus said, hey, listen, I'm going to go back to my father, but don't worry. I'm going to send you another. He's going to be your comforter. But here's the job of the Holy Ghost. He's going to reprove the world of sin. He's going, to be, he's going to be the prosecuting attorney and convict the world that there is sin. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Everybody wants the presence of God, and I'm going to preach on it later on, but we want it so we can shout, and we say we'll have the victory, and it'll be revival. Yes, it will, but before that happens, there'll be conviction and contrition and confession. Here's what I believe tonight. The altar is not as full as it ought to be in the average church. Everybody right now, you're all right. The altar is not as full as it should be. Numbers 32, 23 says, be sure your sin will find its way out. I was talking to Pastor earlier back in the study. In the Old Testament, in the priesthood, those priests stopped at an altar, then stopped at a laver before they ever could enter into where the ark or the presence of God really was. That earthly tabernacle had a dirt floor. And as long as they served in an earthly tabernacle, they were going to get dirty every time. 
You and I live in an earthly tabernacle, Second Peter. That, that altar is a type of salvation. You stop there and make your sacrifice. But then there's that brazen laver, that, that laver made of, of brass mirrors so that whenever they went to wash themselves in it, it would reflect and show them what they were. And they'd have to wash their hands, a type of service, wash their feet, a type of their walk. And if they did not get cleansed, then they could not go in to serve or else God would kill them if they didn't stop for the cleansing. In John chapter 13, Jesus is sitting there with his disciples right before he go to Gethsemane and pray and begins to wash his disciples' feet. And he takes off his garments and girds himself with a towel and goes around that table, begins to wash the feet of these sinners saved by grace. And what a picture of servitude and humility it is, but it's more than that. As he goes around that table and begins to wash feet, he finally gets to his problem child, Peter. He's the hardest staff member to manage. Every time he gets to Peter, Peter's trying to kill somebody, cussing out somebody, you know, whatever. Sinking up the sea and has to rescue him, and he gets to his problem church member right there. And Peter said, well, you're not going to wash me. You know, trying to be pious. And Jesus said, if I don't wash you, then you don't have any part with me or in me. And then Peter, not knowing what to say, as always, takes sandal inserts in mouth. And he said, well, fine, then wash all of me from head to toe. And he said, you've already been washed. You don't need washed all over. You just need your feet washed. It's a picture. You and I have been saved. We've already been washed by the, the washing of regeneration. The Holy Spirit of God has already washed us. We, we've already been cleansed, if you will. But we still need that daily practical confession and cleansing of our sin. And here's the problem. When you and I come to church, we are sitting down around the proverbial table. And God, the Holy Ghost, is going around the table and saying, Hey, I want to wash your feet. You've got dirty feet. You've already been bathed, but your feet have gotten some dirt on them. And you can't walk right. And you can't serve right unless you allow me to wash your feet and you'll come and too often we're like Peter at first and say no 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 you're not going to wash me and we leave without the victory and we leave without the joy and we leave without overcoming but if you'll just come humble yourself at an old fashioned altar and listen and obey the impulse of the Holy Ghost of God and say wash me I know I'm a sinner I know I've done wrong I'm not fooling anybody they know who I am and you know who I am God, I confess my sin. Here's the blessing. That conviction that brings contrition yields that confession and it clears the way for God to send revival to your life. When we realize how holy he is, ought to convict us. There ought not be any pride in his presence, any criticism in his presence, any lightness or flippancy in his presence. How long has it been since you got under conviction? We'll never have revival until we confess our sin. We'll never have revival until we get it right. We're so scared of that word repentance, but it's a Bible word, neighbor. When's the last time you were sorry for your sin? Or I was sorry for my sin. We have begot, we've become numb to sin because we live around it. And we're forced to bow down to it this whole month. And many... Christians, if you preach against that particular one, they get so quiet and scared, nervous. We've just gotten used to it. Used to preach against going certain places and everybody posts pictures of them at those places. No shame. And then they come on Sunday and try to put their fig leaves on and act like there's no problem. And all the while they're thinking, I wonder why church was so dead. 
I wonder why my prayer life's so dead. I wonder why my Bible seems so dead. I wonder why God seems so cold to me. I don't understand why it's not sweet. He's trying to make it sweet, but you've got to get right. And I have to get right. Man, not one of us deserves to stand behind that pulpit and preach. We're not acting like we've got it all together. We're admitting we don't. But thank God for 1 John 1, 9. You study 1 John and I'll close. I don't normally go all the way up to the bell. So let me, but 1 John chapter 1 begins in verse number, I think it's verse number 2 or 3. One of those Bible verses. It's in the book anywhere. But it, is somewhere. it says fellowship, 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 fellowship. John is saying, I'm writing you this epistle so that you might have fellowship with the Father. And that brings you down to verse number 8 that says, If any man say you have no sin, he deceives himself. John's saying, you're walking around all puffed up like you're a super Christian, just stepped out of the fundamental J.C. Penney catalog, never anything wrong in your life. He said, hey, you're, you're fooling yourself, but nobody else. Amen. And then he said, and that's why I'm going to give you 1 John 1, 9 to help you a little bit. If we confess our sin, he's not saying if you sin, he's saying if you confess. Because the sinning part, it's already definite. Amen. But he said, if you do, if you confess it, he is faithful. And he is just. He can be just because he paid the sacrifice himself, so on his own merit, he can forgive our sin. And he can cleanse us. We're big on car washes around here. Mainly because we have to be. I'm kidding, Pastor. I would have washed mine anyway, but we do car washes regularly. I do. I washed it this week, but you know what I'm going to have to do next week? Wash my car. You know why? Because there's dirt in the atmosphere. And just driving it through the atmosphere makes it dirty. You know why you and I need to regularly commit, confess, get right with God? Just because of where we live. And we can't drive down the road, go to the grocery store, talk on the phone, scroll, scroll your media, whatever it is, without being bombarded with wrong. So don't act like you've never done it before. Now, I'm not advocating for it. I wish we wouldn't. But I'm saying we can get it right. They say an elephant, I'll close, an elephant won't drink from clean water because it doesn't want to see itself. It wants to drink muddy water. I think that's why a lot of Christians like to go to these worldly churches. Some place where it's kind of murky and you don't really see yourself for what you are. But if you want to experience the realness of God, we've got to see ourselves for who we are, see Him for who He is. And then we'll cry out to Him for forgiveness. I'm going to pray the altar be open. His presence, the Holy Spirit of God is no doubt working even now. He has in my life as I've studied it. Even tonight, we can't see it on the outside, but on the inside, His presence searches When's the last time you were broken over your sin? When's the last time sin bothered you? When's the last time you prayed not for others but for self and said, God, I need to get right? Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.